What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In many Arab countries, if a man kills a female family member for some perceived immorality, the punishment is lax. It's called an honor killing, but a better word is murder. We ask why support for them remains and look at pockets of resistance. And when people called Chick Corea a jazz fusion pioneer, he didn't really understand. He was simply having a blast pouncing across musical boundaries. We look back on his life helping jazz break out of smoky bars and into wider culture. But first... A dispute between Australian lawmakers and American tech giants took a dramatic turn this week. For months, the government has been debating a new media code that would force the likes of Google and Facebook to pay traditional news outlets when linking to their content. The code was approved on Wednesday by Australia's lower house of parliament and is expected to pass in the Senate next week. On the same day, Google announced a three-year deal with News Corp, the Rupert Murdoch-owned conglomerate that has a big presence in Australia's broadcast market. Google's decision to pay up, in line with the proposed legislation, was seen as a move to placate lawmakers. But Facebook took a different approach. Australians waking up yesterday to see the news wouldn't have actually seen any news if they get their news from Facebook, because on that day, Facebook decided to block all news articles in Australia. Tom Wainwright is our media editor. Facebook tried to ban just news websites, that was the intention, but it used some kind of machine learning method which didn't seem to go very well because as well as banning news sites, they banned all kinds of other things, charities, the fire service, health services, a project for children with cancer, and most of those were reasonably quickly corrected, but in PR terms, the damage was done, people were outraged. Why exactly were people outraged? Well, people are outraged about the fact that so many things have been blocked that weren't supposed to be blocked. But people are also saying that in the middle of a pandemic, it's obviously not a great time to be blocking legitimate news sites, providing true information about things like, you know, what the state of current lockdown laws are or where to get your vaccine, that kind of thing. Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, not surprisingly, is capitalising on this. The idea of shutting down the sort of sites they did yesterday as some sort of threat, well, I know how Australians react to that. He's keen to make this as much of an international question as he can, and he's pointing out that other countries are considering these codes as well and and wrestling with these same dilemmas. So I think Australia is hoping that other countries will take its side in this battle. And so what did Facebook say about this? How did it explain itself? Facebook says that Australia's position basically rests on a misunderstanding about the relationship between Facebook and and publishers. And they say that actually when Facebook publishes a link to an article, it's the publisher that actually is benefiting from that, not Facebook. 
And so they think it's odd that they should be the ones who are required to pay publishers for linking to publishers' stories. In fact, they say that in Australia last year, they reckon that they generated more than 5 billion referrals to Australian news sites, which they say would be worth about 400 million Australian dollars. And they say, actually, if publishers think they're somehow getting a bad deal from this, they should just stop publishing their stories to Facebook. They're not under any obligation to have their stuff on there. But for its part, Google made a different decision. Well, that's interesting. Google's done exactly the opposite. You know, the the tech firms were faced with this, in some ways, impossible demand. You know, they were told either to pay up or or take their business elsewhere. Facebook decided that it was probably less bad to shut down its news links than it was to, to set the precedent of coughing up. Google made the opposite choice and it this week did a deal with News Corp, which is Rupert Murdoch's news organisation, and smaller deals with various other news organisations, the terms of which haven't been fully disclosed, but the gist seems to be that they'll basically pay them lots of money and in return they'll be allowed to carry on listing their news articles. And what do you make of those different approaches to this threat of of regulation? The differing actions that Google and Facebook have taken on this, I think, really reflect the kinds of business that they're in. For Facebook, they say that news actually is quite a small part of what they do. It's less than 4%, they say, of what you see on your newsfeed. For Google, I think a search engine that wasn't allowed to show links to any news articles wouldn't be much of a search engine. And you can imagine people pretty quickly abandoning Google and going to something else like, say, Bing, which is owned by Microsoft, which has been a a bit of a cheerleader for these Australian reforms. So I think Google just decided that it was too big a hit for it to take. Facebook decided to gamble. And I think we'll see in the next few days whether this gamble pays off. And and how much of either of these reactions do you think sets a a wider precedent for, for other jurisdictions? I think all countries are watching this. I mean, it, what really is behind all of this, if you go back, you know, years and years, it's the collapse in ad revenue for traditional media, most of which has gone to these new media organisations, principally Facebook and Google. In Australia, 10 years ago, traditional media had about 80% of the ad market. It's now got about 40%, and the rest of it has gone to these new tech firms. And I think something similar has happened in most countries. And I think people everywhere are wondering... A, whether these new tech firms aren't taxed enough, and B, are there ways to support old-fashioned journalism? And in Australia, they've kind of put two and two together and and tried to come up with this mechanism for tech firms to funnel some of their money to old media. Whether or not it's a fair way of doing it, I'm not totally sure. In some ways, it seems odd to me that social platforms should have to pay for linking to a news article. But... I think it's certainly true that all countries are looking at this, seeing what happens and seeing if if there's anything in it that they might want to copy themselves. And it immediately touches on something we've talked about on the show before, the the foundational idea of the internet that, uh, well, the phrase is information wants to be free. Do you think this is starting to pick away at that? I think it is a bit, yeah. I mean, Tim Berners-Lee, who was the guy who more or less invented the World Wide Web, said in his submission to the Australian Senate that the, the, the free web was really at risk here and the idea that you can link to what you like without paying was under threat. Uh, somebody from Facebook in a Facebook submission said that it was rather like if you tell a friend that you know you recommend a local cafe that you should have to pay the cafe for recommending it. You know, it's, It sounds in some ways as though things are backwards. And I suppose people would retort to that, that actually uh, the internet has changed and, you know, we're not dealing with the old web anymore. We're dealing with a world in which, for many people, Facebook really is the way in which they get their news and Google obviously is similarly dominant in search. 
And I think one thing that comes out of this episode in Australia is that people will realise just how dominant Facebook is when it comes to the way people get their information. I think at a time when a lot of people are wondering if Facebook is too powerful, they've actually just accidentally demonstrated what enormous media power they have. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this, from media to money to matters of state, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Over the past year or two, we have seen a recurrence of acts of violence and murder against sisters by their own brothers. Noor Al-Mukhled is a Kuwaiti activist with Abolish 153. The group campaigns against honor killings, which typically involve men murdering female relatives for actions they deem to be immoral. The Abolish 153 campaign started in 2015, when a Kuwaiti student was stabbed 16 times by her father, who justified it as a crime of honor, based on Article 153. The group is named after Article 153 of the Kuwaiti Penal Code, which sets out lax punishments for honor killings. The idea and concept of honor has become really wide and plastic. Whatever these men may consider immoral can go under the concept of honor killing. Because the idea of honor is so ingrained and deeply rooted in the culture, even the simplest deviance to it is intolerable. It's not only in Kuwait. Across the region, honor killings remain common. It's really very hard to know the precise extent of honour killings in the Middle East because no country in the Middle East or North Africa releases an official count. Nick Pelham is our Middle East correspondent. And yet, anecdotally, we know from activists that the rate of honour killings is still very common. And we know that governments are treating them very differently to other forms of murder. For instance, in Kuwait, if a man catches his wife committing adultery or or a female relative in the presence of a man and kills her, a maximum penalty would be three years in prison or a fine of 3,000 rupees or sort of $45. And that is pretty much replicated in many countries across the Middle East. And why is it then that these kinds of murders are treated so differently in these countries? Uh, Many people have many different explanations. Some blame Islam for the practice, but we know that the Quran sets a very high bar for punishing adultery. You need four eyewitnesses to the act of fornication and not the suspicion hearsay of today's honor killings. And we know that there are prominent clerics, including some quite sort of hardline clerics who have come out explicitly and said that honor killing is not permitted in Islam. Others tend to blame Europe. Most legislations in the Arab world derive from French law, which makes allowances for crimes of passion. And we know that there's a kind of undercurrent of tribalism, which has kind of been resurfacing 
across the Middle East as more states fail and people rely increasingly on their tribes for, for, for coping mechanisms. But I think actually the kind of perhaps the most plausible explanation is that there's a real fear amongst men that they are losing control. Societies have changed dramatically in recent decades and particularly in recent years. Women who used to sort of be housebound now have access to the outside world, not least through the internet, and they're making their voices heard. And there's this kind of real attempt, this male backlash to try and retain control, and honour killings are perhaps the most extreme form of that. And is this something that's supported by the public in general? It's difficult to get a precise number. There are some pollsters who've tried to gauge public opinion, but access isn't possible everywhere. When they do gain access, they often come across official obstacles. That said, one pollster, Arab Barometer, has surveyed six countries and the West Bank and found that more people thought honour killings were acceptable than thought so of homosexuality. And particularly worrying, in many places, young Arabs are more likely than their parents to condone honour killing. And those sort of findings are borne out by views that are expressed on the street and on social media. Opponents of honour killing, they're accused of promoting adultery and Western norms, So we know there is a a really strong body of support that is deeply resistant to social change, which is going to take a harsher view of honour killing and uh, any move sort of towards legislating in favour of treating honour killing as murder akin to any other. And so is there a, a real push for that kind of legislative change that you think would be so difficult? Across the Middle East, women are trying to make their voice heard and there have been campaigns, particularly online campaigns, to encourage governments to stamp out honour killing and take a much more vigorous approach. Last summer in Jordan, the hashtag Ahlam Screams trended very widely and that was in response to a man who was filmed in public. He'd taken a a brick and smashed his daughter's uh, skull in, in the street and then he sort of sat and drank tea and smoked a cigarette while his daughter bled to death on on, on the ground and waited for the the police to arrive. That provoked outrage amongst many women in in Jordan, unsurprisingly, and that has led to some notional progress. Well, you would hope that it it would. I mean, what's happened since then? Under pressure both from campaign groups at home and from the UN, several governments have tried to upgrade their laws. Um, Several have passed laws against uh, domestic violence, including uh, Saudi Arabia, And there has been some move to open and upgrade women's shelters. Jordan used to jail women who are at risk indefinitely, and Jordan opened its first shelter for women in in 2018. But only Lebanon, Tunisia and the Palestinian Authority have abolished laws that treat um, honour crimes leniently. The United Arab Emirates, UAE, said that it had two last November, but it's yet to publish its provisions. So it sounds like there there is some positive change here, but it doesn't sound like the, the overall outlook is very optimistic. Yeah, I mean, even in places where governments do change the law, it can often be mere lip service and attempt to sort of get the UN off their back. Enforcement by judges and officials and the police it remains patchy. Local authorities sometimes register honour killings as suicide or disappearances. And frequently the legal system is sort of superseded by tribal codes. And this is particularly the case in Iraq. 
And for many governments, it's easier to stop female activists than murderous men. We've seen in Saudi Arabia that when women tried to set up a charity and register it to provide shelters for women at risk, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had them jailed. And there's been similar cases in Jordan, in Kurdistan, in, in northern Iraq. The authorities there have been cracking down quite heavily on women who are trying to provide shelters. So it's really a pretty bleak picture when it comes to enforcement across the Middle East. So in, in that sense, it sounds not that things are getting better, but that they're in fact getting worse. It, it's certainly the case that the definition for what constitutes a breach of honour seems to be widening. Last year, women weren't just murdered for being caught on suspicion of adultery, but they were murdered for such of supposed offences as wearing makeup and chatting online. Last month, there was a Saudi woman who was killed by her brothers for having a Snapchat account. And when her sister posted the news on social media that her body had been dumped in the desert, the police even detained her. So generally, it seems that honour killings are not subsiding. And we know that particularly at a time of lockdown and the spread of the global pandemic, COVID-19, violence against women has increased worldwide. And this seems particularly to be the case in the Middle East. Thanks very much for joining us, Nick. Thank you, Jason. Chick Corea was a jazz pianist and a composer. Anne Rowe is our obituaries editor. And he was also a pioneer of jazz fusion, which is the way that jazz weaves in, if you like, with rock and rhythm and blues. Chick Corea's most famous and popular song was called Spain. It was released by his group that was called Return to Forever. Spain featured the instrument he came to be known mostly for, which was the electric piano, generally the Fender Rhodes. He thought it was pretty strange at first and didn't much like either the look of it or the sound of it. He came across it when he was in Miles Davis's band, working with the great trumpeter, and both of them were hoping to take jazz in new directions and felt that probably a change of instrument was something that would revive the whole genre of jazz. As he gradually played on it more and more, he came to love it. Fairly soon after he discovered the Fender Rhodes piano, he decided anyway that he would leave Miles Davis's band and set up a band of his own. The moment he felt he had really broken through was with his Hymn of the Seventh Galaxy, which he made with his band Return to Forever. He could feel there was such a tremendous vibe going on between the members of the band. And when they tried it out on the public, they found that they were transferring all their excitement in what they were creating to the audience. And it was really the first time that they had felt that jazz could reach an audience on such a scale, that it could have such a large effect on people. And that was really what he had been trying to achieve. Jazz fusion was a tremendous commercial success. It was such a success that he began to feel it was weighing him down somewhat. And in fact, even at the peak of the success of it, he was always 
also playing in avant-garde groups, doing crazy things like coming on stage and playing on a concert grand and at the same time plucking its strings. His bands themselves just kept changing. There were two particular musicians whom he worked with. One was a vibraphone player called Gary Burton. This produced a music which was much more meditative and still, and this can be seen particularly on a track called Crystal Silence. And he also played with a banjoist, Bella Fleck, which allowed him to incorporate the busy sort of plucking sounds of the banjo in with the rather crisp sounds of himself playing on the electric piano, and it can be seen very effectively in Senorita. There was one extraordinary occasion in Brussels where he gave what appeared to be a classical concert and started off with Mozart's Sonata in F and proceeded to mash it up with Gershwin's The Man I Love and presented it to a very critical-looking audience. And he gradually feeds in more and more of Gershwin's The Man I Love, making the music more and more extraordinary. No matter how at home he felt in a concert hall and no matter how warm the audience, he did feel that he wanted to take them to somewhere new when he played. What he wanted to do was sit down at the piano, just try a little bit of free improvisation or strike a note. And with that first note, like the first note he'd ever struck on a Fender Rhodes piano, he'd leap over any doubt that there seemed to be in his mind. He'd leap into the new music and he'd take the audience with him. Anne Rowe on Chick Corea, who's died aged 79. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson. Our senior producers are Chris Impey and Hannah Mourinho. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren, and assistant producer Jason Hoskett, with additional production help from Emily Elias and Pete Naughton. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd Evans, and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindairo. We'll all see you back here on Monday. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.